I have Alexander Paul here. Really, really pleased to be on the show along with your long list of very fascinating, very fascinating guests. So my name is Alexander Paul. I live in remote northern Sweden where I thought I could escape and live a role model life closer to nature with my family. I had spent 20 years as a sustainable finance, banking, accounting professional, during which time I, I saw many things. For my sins, I grew up in, the, in Iowa, near Iowa City, Iowa, so I have a transatlantic view on things. This chat today is, is sort of part of my mission of just sharing my story and my experiences in the hope that other people will pick up pieces, perhaps uh, feel that some of the things that I have experienced are things that they are experiencing, because at the moment we live in a very tumultuous time where the currency is not data, the currency is not, is not money, the currency is actually knowledge. And so I, I hope over about the next 45 minutes to just give people a little, a little bit of my knowledge in the hopes that it demystifies. And I love the matrix analogy, even though I, I know a little bit too much about that film. You know, we are all various characters within this this life that we're all living. Sometimes we're Neo, sometimes we're Trinity, sometimes we're Morpheus or even the Oracle. And today I hope to be a little bit of the Oracle and share some unique, at least for me, unique insights into the green transition as hopefully your, your listeners will recognize that term or climate change and just give a different perspective based on my experience. In preparation for this, I watched your movie, Headwind 21, and I listened to a number of podcasts featuring you, and I'm looking forward to this. And as you said, it's going to be hard to fit it into one podcast, so I think we're going to have to do more than one. But uh, do you want to talk about maybe being in the UK or as a banker? Yeah, I think that's probably a, a, a reasonable place to start. So I, I grew up in the US. I, I finished my school in Germany. I went to university in, in Scotland. I studied environmental engineering, civil and environmental. And I went to London because I couldn't find a job as an engineer. So I, I really wanted to build stuff, help fix the planet's problems. And I ended up being turned down by about 50 engineering companies. From the fact that I approached 50 engineering companies, you can probably imagine that I'm a little bit tenacious and don't give up easily. But during that process, I ended up landing a graduate job at KPMG, which is Seinfeld, Pete Marwick, Girdler, for people who are stickler for, for the old name of the outfit, one of the world's largest auditing and professional services company, pops up on headlines for innumerous frauds and corruption scandals involving the misrepresentation of financial accounts or tax avoidance. So they're, they're really smart people. And I had a really great time there learning how the world works. And I spent five years initially as a, a graduate accountant, where I learned about how numbers work and this fantasy world of, of money that the humans have created doesn't exist in nature. You know, humans sort of came up with this concept out of thin air. Uh, then I got involved in large transactions, so mergers and acquisitions. So I worked with BP and Shell when they were buying or divesting or private equity firms. It was fascinating to look at when Hitachi, which is a Japanese company, bought Westinghouse, which was an American nuclear business. 
you know, we looked at all the different production facilities and storage sites for radioactive waste. Other times we looked at asbestos or massive pollution and contamination risks and issues. And I learned how to dig, dig through databases, interview people, talk to people, and really to, to get information from many different sources to form an opinion, you know, and, and my opinion would always change and evolve as I got new information. And I've sort of carried that on through, through my life. I then was lucky enough to get involved in risk and insurance. So I left KPMG after five years and went to HSBC. And HSBC is one of the largest banks in the world, the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation. It, had, it has many different financial services sort of subdivisions. I landed in an insurance broking business, selling insurance for mergers and acquisitions. So when people were buying companies, they didn't want to inherit certain risks, so they would buy insurance, flood insurance and property risk insurance. So I learned about climate change modeling and climate risk. Then we also did pollution and contamination. So, you know, if you're operating a business, a factory, and you're worried about people being polluted or contaminated, maybe you have a, a, a train line shipping highly toxic, toxic uh, materials like the East Palestine train crash, there is now insurance to, to pay for those things. So I sold that for a while. Then I, that business was sold. So I learned about the, 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 the dark sides of companies being bought and sold and employees being commodities and you know humans being reduced to numbers. But I'm a smart guy. So I managed to jump from the insurance broking business, which was being sold to the bank itself. And I was brought in by a guy called Noel Quinn, who is now the CEO of HSBC. So, you know, you've got a name drop to give yourself a little bit of credibility. So the CEO of HSBC is responsible for bringing me in. He was really nice, really supportive. And I led a business which was called Climate Business. So this is 15 years ago, well, let's say about 10, 12 years ago, Climate Business. So make money from the green transition before all of the latest crazy scaremongering. And the reason I was able to get that job is because I forgot to mention when I was at KPMG, I did a lot of United Nations clean development mechanism. This is early days of the monetization of carbon dioxide and the IPCC. So my colleagues used to go to the meetings and write the reports and, you know, we made a lot of money. We made a lot of money. At the time, I was young and I was, I thought I was doing the right thing. So, you know, again, that's something that I think is really important because there are many people who are so passionate and you sometimes get blinded by your passion. Uh, and at the time I just didn't realize what I was doing. I didn't appreciate the bigger picture. I spent then uh, years at, at HSBC doing early days of carbon trading. I did, I was involved in some of the green lending that's happening project finance for renewable energy and large infrastructure. So I'm a jack of many things in the banking and finance sector, but I, I was never a, an expert. So enough information to be dangerous, enough information to dangerously connect the dots. But, you know, I can't say that I ever got rich. I, I tried to stay morally sound. I would say that sometimes I was tested. And then when I finished, after 20 years of KPMG and HSBC, that's when I then escaped 
And then I fell into discovering that on my own doorstep were some wind farms. So maybe one could argue that I started as a bit of a NIMBY, but I quickly changed from NIMBY to Niambi. So not in anyone's backyard, right? So that's talking about, you know, these things just didn't make sense. It wasn't the location. It wasn't because I was being selfish. It was because there was a fundamental flaw, a flaw in the presentation, a flaw in the permitting and regulation, a flaw in the finance. And then I discovered a flaw in sort of the propaganda and, and the, the press coverage. And that really got me. Many of the people who listen to your show will be familiar with many of the names that you've had on. And I, of course, we all have an ego. We all think that we're special and we all are very special. But it's always really good to just Google yourself. And so I just Googled myself and I was surprised to see how little there is on me, um, considering all of the work that I, that I did at, at HSBC. So, you know, I did sustainable insurance here. You know, I did some work around green finance. Yeah, only one picture of me, luckily. So it, there was very little done. I had lots of great contacts across the press and the media, and none of them would would, would speak to me anymore. And actually, I will just, I'll quickly just go to um, Bloomberg, Jess Shankleton, because she wrote an article about us in the early days, which turned out to be complete gaslighting. I spoke to so many different movie producers and documentarians, and none of them would really listen to me. So I had to go and find a documentarian, and I was able to find Marijn Wells, who's a Dutch documentarian working out of Germany, who I had seen one of his films called Return to Eden, which I found very inspiring. And I was like, I got to reach out to this guy. And with almost no budget, so you know, I didn't buy a movie, he crowdfunded it. We produced this 90 minutes movie, which is a movie of two halves. It's called Headwind 21. It's free on YouTube. I had hoped at the beginning to be able to finance all of my legal activity, but sadly, I, I, I didn't end up being able to do that. And it talks about wind power as a proxy for corruption within the green transition. Uh, I'm not against wind turbines as a concept or using the wind for energy. We've done that for thousands of years or hundreds of years with the windmills and mechanical or sailboats, et cetera. It was just when the foundation of these wind turbines will save the planet, i.e. regenerate nature, provide us economic prosperity and cause minimal damage. When, those, when the logic of that didn't stand up, I, 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 made, I made headwinds. And anyone who's watching it, and I, I really encourage people to watch it and share it if it resonates with them, is a movie of two halves. One is to wake people up to the fact that things that can be put across as being good can be bad. So, you know, a bad marketing or dark marketing, we can look at the opioids crisis in the US, which I think is costing between one and 4% of GDP, something crazy. You know, those were sold as being 100% safe, non-addictive, et cetera. And now it's a, a total addiction crisis. So one half is about waking people up and giving them a bit more visibility because most people in cities don't actually even know what a wind turbine is properly and what it's made up with. 
And then to take people through the logic of, does it make sense? Are the claims valid? Are they, you know, do people actually know what they're talking about when they promote these? And of course, also to give some facts and figures, as well as to show people that I'm not just coming from this NIMBYism perspective. I actually have been to court 12 times. I have systematically tested the police, the prosecutors, the regulators, the permit issuers, NGOs, the courts, and have found systemic collusion. And that's what this, the scary thing is. So I encourage people to watch this because the short of it is, is that throughout history, humans have been unduly influenced through consumerism and market trends. And we are often convinced using emotional tools and for want of a better description, brainwashing is maybe an extreme way to call it, but you know, through repetition and subconscious programming, we are convinced that something's good. I was one of these people. I love technology, but once you do wake up and see that when they present something as simple as wind turbines, Yes, they kill birds, but other things kill many more birds. So I'm just going to find if I've got the, I have up a very nice sort of promotional thing from, where is it? That's the oil investment gap. Wind power. Oh, yes. Yeah. Here, this is Deutsche Welle. Uh, Deutsche Welle is like a, a national broadcaster in Germany. It is the voice of the German government. Wind power critics, what's the truth about their claims? And you just run through this and they use these psychological techniques of, you know, does wind power ruin the landscape? Well, wind turbines might be ruining the landscape, but coal mines are so much worse. So, you know, they're using these techniques to make you not think about one or the other. You know, do noise from wind farms make you sick? They talk about audible sound. The entire debate about wind farms is called inaudible or infrasound, which is well known in an industrial context to cause you know, health issues. And there are a number of studies which are poorly funded. The absence of evidence is often used as evidence of it being safe just because, well, show me the report that this says this is dangerous. Well, no one's funded that research because it's not commercially viable. Well, that's your tough nut. So how loud is wind turbine? So they go through a lot, a lot of effort to sort of confuse you. Do wind power hurt birds and nature? Well, yeah, it does. But hey, agriculture kills way more. So do buildings, even cats. Wind power does hardly anything in comparison. However, what they omit is, you know, they're not comparing like with like. Wind power kills apex predators, which destabilize ecosystems. Apex predators are large eagles, very high value, low population birds. And buildings and agriculture, for the more, kill like sparrows and songbirds. Not saying that sparrows and songbirds are an acceptable bird to kill, but, you know, they're mixing apples and oranges. So people watching the film will get a really good feeling, you know, do only the rich profit from wind power. Again, you know, they're using money and those types of things to get people to get confused and, you know, try to separate and demonize and gaslight people like myself who are asking very sensible questions.
So I highly recommend people watch Headwind 21. It's on YouTube and it has an hour long question and answer because one thing I guarantee anyone watching this film is it will make you think. I'm not gonna claim that the film will give you all the answers, but certainly it's designed to get people to think. And we have an hour long question and answer afterwards that answers some of the most immediate things that people think about when they see the film. Do you have any more plans for more films? So I've been working really hard on a follow-up because as, as we'll develop out in, in the rest of this conversation is for me, wind turbines are the entry points into a dark green complex sort of collusion or conspiracy. So what I mean by conspiracy is $1.4 trillion uh, were spent on the green transition last year. So last year in total, upstream oil and gas and so forth was at about five or 600 billion. So, you know, the green transition is now two and a half times more investment than oil and gas. So, you know, to say that oil and gas is where only things are happening is a lie. Renewable energy, wind, solar, et cetera, is already at five, 600 billion a year. And that's from IRENA, which is the International Re Renewable Energy Association. And I'll just pull, pull up my, uh, here it is. So here, investment needs of 35 trillion by 2030. So, you know, we're already at five, 600 billion, 1.4 trillion. So, you know, the numbers that are being banded about here are an insanity. And listeners need to be aware that most of this money is, is taxpayer money, it's pension money, and also it's, it's money that changes forms. So wind power is often built by speculative money. They're the ones who really make out like bandits. And then they sell on to the, I would almost call it the stupid money. These are the people who are left holding the baby. So. This 35 trillion is going to be your pension funds. It's going to be our, your taxpayer funds. It's going to be, you know, all of those types of future, you know, selling out your future. And it's going to go into things like wind turbines, which just simply don't work for many reasons. But the main one is that the entire principle of we need infinite energy. And, you know, this is where I come into conflict with some of the other people like maybe Robert Bryce or uh, Schellenbacher or Bjorn Lomborg, I don't think that the solution to the world's problems is simply abundant, cheap electricity. You know, I'm a uh, Fritz Schumacher, small is beautiful school of economics guy, that it's the appropriate use of electricity, energy, and technology that is the solution not infinite and cheap. You know, that's, that's the talk of a drug addict, you know, just give me a, you know, a cheaper hit. I can't afford cocaine anymore. So now I switch to crack or I, I, I can't smoke anymore. So I'm going to switch to vaping. You know, you're not solving the problem. You're not addressing the core societal issues and the appropriate use and allocation of energy also addresses some of these gaslighting stories about, well, you know, the people in Africa want to rise up. Well, the people in Africa have enough electricity. It's just not getting to the people who need it. 
right? You know, the villagers are being kept down, whereas most of the energy goes into cobalt mines or, you know, large extractive industries, which are raping and pillaging. I was in Uganda, the World Bank, which is, a, which is the United Nations Bank, built a gigantic hydroelectric uh, electric scheme across uh, Jinja Falls, which is, was a beautiful waterfall in Uganda. They built a massive hydro scheme with electricity. Well, that's more than enough electricity for all the people in Uganda to be lifted out of uh, poverty with mobile phones and a computer and sensible refrigeration, but they're still living in squalor. So where did the electricity go? You know, so people can't, they need to also think about things like GDP. GDP is the, the economic productivity of a country simply divided by the population. It has nothing to do with the actual allocation of that GDP across the population. So we're really in a time where people just are saying things without necessarily showing the vision. So the vision for me is E.F. Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, Economics, If Nature and Humans Mattered. It's a book from 50 years ago that I encourage everyone listening to read. It's inspirational. The tests are super simple. And you feel like there, there actually is hope and something to work towards. There is a crazy amount of money, a lack of governance. And on top of that, this wind farm fraud that I discovered here in Sweden led me to many other places. So I went to Stockholm and it turns out that Sweden is very, very influential when it comes to what's going on in the world. And I'm just going to share my screen again and take you to 1972. Uh, so much of the modern environmentalism and a lot of the environmental fear and a lot of the environmental NGO and emotional influencing can be traced back to this, the 60s and 70s. And a date, which is 1972, it was the, the first United Nations environment sort of meeting took place in Stockholm, Sweden. So Stockholm, Sweden was the theater for this UN conference on the environment. And it was the first time they talked about a healthy planet. And anyone who saw Jakob Norengord's conversation with you will be familiar with some of this stuff. This is the Club of Rome publishing their Limits to Growth, a famous book, which is referred to by many people at the moment, particularly the degrowth agenda. Jason Hinkle talking about, you know, we need to scale down our economies, etc. So in 1972, they had this meeting, United Nations. It was, it was big fanfare with lots of activists from the, the US and from other places, they came together and they started off what was, which later became Agenda 2030 and Agenda 21. And these things really are important for people to read because if you don't think that there is some type of collusion, you just need to read these United Nations documents, sustainable development goals. And then you need to be aware of how there is an interconnectedness between various parties. And here, for example, the United Nations, which is, you could just do United Nations and corruption or United Nations and fraud, and you'll find out how dark and dirty an organization the United Nations has become. 
from, I guess you would almost say, honest beginnings post-World War II, where we wanted to rebuild a better world after the devastation. Of course, when you learn that World War I and World War II were very, very good business and that war in general is very good business, it also draws you into a place where you question the authenticity and legitimacy of the United Nations. But anyway, in 2019, the World Economic Forum, which is Klaus Schwab, signed a strategic agreement with Antonio Guterres, who you see in the press a lot at the moment, saying that the world is at an end. We need stronger global governance. They came together and decided to basically employ the World Economic Forum as almost like the strategy advisor for the United Nations. And for anyone who knows the World Economic Forum, and I used to write papers for colleagues because HSBC is a, a very important member, my old bank, my old employer at the World Economic Forum. They are the representative of the corporate and business world, really, and the global elite. So they have various clubs, the global elite, Club of Rome, the Club of Madrid. They have the elders. They have the World Economic Forum. They have the Bilderberg Group. So these are various clubs and groups, think tanks, strategy, I guess you would call them think tanks or strategy creators, policy influencers who have come together. And so the World Economic Forum and the United Nations work collaboratively. So colluding, collaborative, conspiracy, all of these are terms which just talk about people doing things together. And certainly we are at a moment where various supposedly independent global institutions are actually very strongly influenced. Same thing goes for the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the International Bank of, of Settlements. These are all supposedly international organizations shaping global policy. The IPCC is supposed to be the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's also supposed to be independent, but it's made up of scientists who work for university institutions, which are heavily funded and influenced by global elites. None of this is, is theory. I'm just quoting facts. So we have the United Nations come together. Then as said, we have, we have various organizations trying to tell us that, you know, we're in a lot of trouble. The, our earth is on fire, which it clearly is. But then you, uh, as I'm a banker, I was always following the money. So World Economic Forum, global elites, influencing the United Nations. The United Nations in turn is producing reports, which it is pushing out and saying that the world is on fire and you know everything needs to change. Then you go into the Club of Rome, which is the limits of growth from 1972. And you find out that various people who are in the Club of Rome are then influential people in other NGOs or media outlets. And so the wind power issue took me into this myriad of green fraud. The purpose of our conversation today was really just to give an introduction to how money corrupts. And you look at the industry that has been built up around climate change, and you have to separate yourself from the origins of climate change, right? So not to to speak down or badly of anyone who's a climate scientist or weather specialist or physicist, because the weather and the, our planetary climate is such a complex system. People work for 
hundreds of years and they don't understand how the, the climate works and cannot produce a model that will accurately model it. So it's a fascinating space of experimentation and research and uncertainty and you know intellectual conversations. The one thing it isn't is certain. We know that we change the climate. You know, if you cut down a tree, that tree will not be respiring. It will cause local climate change. Literally cutting down one tree, there will be, you know, it will change how the wind flows and, and so forth. So we have to separate ourselves from this infighting between climate is real, climate change is real, climate change is not real. There is a climate emergency. There isn't a climate emergency because a lot of intellectual energy that could be focused on solving the problem gets dissipated in arguing about the origins. You know, I'm focused on does the solution make sense? And the way the solution is being sold to us, does it make sense? Do wind turbines create millions of jobs? Well, you know, that statement itself is not properly defined because they don't talk about what kind of jobs. How long are those jobs for? What types of jobs are they? You know, and you know, it, I have found out that here in Sweden, there's one guy, he works on 15 different wind turbines, wind farms, and it's counted as 15 jobs. He only works on each wind farm for a month because he's a guy who operates a crane and he just drives his crane from one wind farm to the next. But, you know, the industry just ticks, oh, job, 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 you know. So seeing the sloppiness of, you know, even the statistics and the data aggregation, we just had a report here in Sweden. Of all the wind farms in Sweden, only one is technically profitable. All the other wind farms make losses. So from a tax perspective... If you make losses, you don't pay income taxes. So again, the argument that these are going to be the utopia of, of financial economic prosperity is a lie because they all make losses. Of course they make losses because it's financially engineered to offshore cash to tax favorable havens like Luxembourg, Isle of Man, Cayman Islands, just like um, Al Gore's own investment fund is based in the Cayman Islands because Al Gore doesn't want to pay taxes on all of the millions of, of dollars worth of money he makes out of his selling climate solutions, right? He needs people to be building synthetic trees, wind turbines, crazy pumped hydro schemes, etc. So that then took me to follow the money to the politics. And so I spoke to many politicians here in Sweden I reached out to Joel Manchin in the US and innumerable Congress people because I wanted to understand where they're coming from. And I learned that in many geographies, politicians are almost like actors, right? They're given scripts by their staffers or by the lobbyists, and they almost read from a script. Certainly that's the way we have it here in Sweden. They're called Schenstemen. These are the, the salaried people behind the scenes who feed the politicians, many politicians, what their scripts. So I found out about this murky world of lobbying and the billions and millions and billions of dollars that go into influencing politicians to decide certain ways. 
And then I went to the press. And this, this one I'm going to have to share again, because one of my favorite newspapers when I was, when I was working was, is The Guardian. And The Guardian, for, for U.S. readers, probably is familiar as well. You know, its sister, well, I, I guess you would say parallel organizations are something like the Wall Street, well, not the Wall Street Journal, it's more the Financial Times. But it's, it, is, it was my favorite green and planet-saving George Monbiot is one of their, their figurehead type of reporters. I approached them when I discovered this green fraud and they listened to me and then they stopped responding to my calls. And I was like, this is really weird. Why is The Guardian? And then I started to see a trend in their reporting. And you know, the most recent one is Bjorn Lomborg. And Bjorn Lomborg is, he just talks about infinite cheap electricity. So I don't necessarily agree with him, but he was on Russell Brand's. And I approached Russell Brands and his team about two years ago and got a response. And then suddenly they went silent. Uh, so I, I don't know. I like Russell a lot. He's a really funny guy. He communicates really well, but I'm not sure what he's playing at. But he had Bjorn Lomborg. So he was in the climate debate uh, talking about energy. And then The Guardian printed this report, you know, Re Russell Brand is reckless, etc. And I was like, Guardian, are you independent? Because if you read The Guardian at the bottom, they always have this, you've read 17 articles this year. We're super poor to keep us. We, unlike many others, we have no billionaire owner, meaning we can fearlessly chase the truth and report it with integrity. I was like, oh, that's really cool. So you're independent. Okay, well, let's take a look. Media Group, strongest financial results. They make 250 million direct through their various magazine outlets. I was like, okay. Oh, wait, look, you're owned by what's called the Scott Trust. And the Scott Trust is a historical vehicle that owns the Guardian newspaper. Oh, it's now worth 1.3 billion. So wait a minute, you are owned by a billionaire trust. And I was like, okay, so, you know, that just blew the, the, the covers off the independence of the Guardian. But then I was like, okay, well, of course, we all know that, you, that newspapers no longer print the news, just like many academic institutions doing research no longer just seek knowledge. They're here to sell stuff. Okay, so what are you here to sell? Okay, look, the Guardian has philanthropic partnerships. Ah, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Okay. Then you've got a bit further down. Who else do you work with, Guardian? Oh, you take money from George Soros's Open Society Foundation. Oh, you take money from the Rockefeller family. And then suddenly it became very clear to me how the media, particularly in this green space, was being bought. And I spoke to 500 journalists. And, you know, some of them were very kind and listened to me but none of them could print anything. And, you know, I'm still trying to convince investigative journalists who have a code of ethics to pursue and talk about the truth to do so. So, you know, The Guardian, I, I was super sad about The Guardian, but then I was like, okay, well, let's take a look. The Rockefeller Foundation made billions or trillions from oil. In 2015, they suddenly changed their tune and became anti-oil and gas. You know, we made our money, now we're going to demonize it. But then I was like, oh, well, let's just have a look. There's this guy, Paul Pullman. And for your readers, Paul Pullman, if they don't, uh, listeners, if they don't know him, he's the former CEO of Unilever. 
He is, he's a very influential guy. He was at COP26. He's the vice chair of the United Nations Global Compact, sustainable development goals, advocates. You know, he's a really, really high profile influencer within the sustainability space. And, you know, I have a mentor and he's, I think Paul is his mentor. So, you know, I'm not too far removed from this God of sustainability, but then, oh, look, Paul, ah, you're on the board of trustees of the Rockefeller Foundation. Wait a minute, Paul, you don't mention that in your LinkedIn profile where you talk about all the things you do. So, you know, we're starting to see this influence coming through and a dishonesty in the way that people present themselves. So Paul Pullman has said uh, on the Rockefeller Foundation, so he's clearly influenced. He's been there since 2019, and he's one of the leading voices on climate response. How should we respond to the climate crisis and its machines and money and that type of thing? So then, um, then I had another guy. So I used to work at HSBC, and I thought, okay, well, let's have a look of if this trend of industrialists buying the leading sustainability voices carries on. And here I was like, oh, look, here is John Flint. He's the former CEO of HSBC, a really nice guy, actually. He was introducing the healthiest human system. He's the CEO of the UK's public infrastructure bank, which will take billions of dollars of taxpayer money and funnel it towards projects. Oh, wait, you are, where do I have it here? Oh, you are on the board of SEB Bank. And SEB Bank is a Swedish bank, which is one of the biggest Swedish banks. And yeah, here, John Flint, you're a director since 2022. But John, you don't mention that on your LinkedIn profile either. And the fact that you lend money to projects that benefits your own bank that you're a director of and so forth is really concerning. So, you know, we're starting to see real clear evidence. And then you're like, okay, well, Sweden punching above its weight. The king of Sweden leads, leads a high level delegation to visit the International Energy Agency. And for those, for listeners who aren't familiar with this, this is another independent global group that is driving climate action, climate funding, climate policy. You know, and what was interesting here is this is where you start to get introduced to some of the people behind the curtain. It kind of takes you to the point of there are people behind the Klaus Schwab's, there are people behind the, the Rockefellers even, and there are families like the Wallenberg family here in Sweden. And if you don't know the Wallenberg family, they are worth, well, they control at least $500 billion worth of companies through their various investment vehicles. And they're one of the richest families here in Sweden. Some of their, the companies that they own are ABB. And ABB is very important for electricity. I think it played a major role in electrifying the world. And many of our grids and electricity systems in the world run off of ABB technology. They also own Ericsson. And Ericsson, and Ericsson technology runs most of the mobile communications systems in the world. Their technology, their patents, Bluetooth is a Wallenberg technology. So you're starting to see they are influencing the king, influencing global policy through the International Energy Agency. So that is just another example of this public-private partnership merging 
you know, our companies are becoming our governments and they are driving the policy and the agenda. And that's very concerning. I'm just trying to do a little bit of scraping the surface to, to reveal what lies behind. Because once you pull back the, the curtain, like in The Wizard of Oz, you know, you see that the mighty Wizard of Oz is actually this old guy with, a, with like a megaphone, you know, talking into a tube. And we're seeing something very similar, that there are hidden hands that stand behind everything, including, and then I'll share my screen again, including Greta. And, you know, I, I like Greta a lot. I've been trying to reach out to Greta for so long. I've went to see her four times. I've spoken to her Fridays for Future. You know, Greta came out around 20, what is it, 2017, 2018. And of course, she's Swedish. So again, you're seeing another Swedish angle. Stockholm Syndrome, Sweden, the Stockholm Resilient Institute, which is responsible for the nine planetary boundaries, is from Sweden. Johan Rackström from the Potsdam Institute is a Swede. So again, we're seeing this really strange influence that Sweden is having on global views. And I can talk for hours and Jakob Nolengord, he could probably talk for hours as well. But, you know, we have Greta. She was 15 years old in 2018. She's now 20. Some people say she was found. Her family is a very influential family here in Sweden. Her great uncle or great great grandfather, his name was Svante Arrhenius, is sometimes credited with the, the discovery of carbon dioxide as a, having global warming potential or warming potential. There's lots of debate and conversation about the validity of his findings and how it was used and how it was carried forward. But it's a funny connection that Greta Thunberg herself has a family lineage to someone who is credited with the, the CO2 narrative. Not going to debate whether the CO2 narrative is valid or not on this, on this chat. But it led me to this, we don't have time. And we don't have time as a social media platform focused on climate. And it is, was founded by a guy called Ingmar Rensog, who is connected to BlackRock. He was a BlackRock public relations guy before he went into this space. And again, just to give you a little bit of an insight, you know, there are so many people who sit behind these organizations, these NGOs, and many NGOs come or are influenced from Sweden. You know, Friends of the Earth is strongly influenced from Sweden, Greenpeace, World Wildlife Fund, all of these organizations I've spoken to, you know, I've even spoken to, you know, uh, some of the founders and some of the activists. And, you know, you just take a look and you see, again, we were talking about the Wallenbergs, but many of the companies involved in We Don't Have Time, which Ingmar is credited by some to have found Greta are Wallenberg companies. And everything that they're asking about is technology, more energy, more electricity, GMO. And so many of my findings, which started so innocently with corrupt wind farms, then mushroomed out into an entire industrial agenda. Doesn't make sense. You know, how are you gonna fix nature if you industrialize it? How are you going to make people healthy if you synthetically influence them? How are you going to, if it's proven that you cannot generate energy without harming the planet and electricity itself through its EMF and through its very nature is a toxin to biological life, how can the solution to all of our problems be digital technology 
and electricity. For me, it's a, a clear paradox. And that's what then led me into what I do these days, which is all about nature, going back to basics and looking at indigenous wisdom, unlocking human potential through natural means. You know, we, we don't need an iWatch. We don't need Strava recording everything that we have. We have so many tools which are natural free and empowering that aren't even being talked about. And we can see that through various health crises. We can see that through various plastics crisis, the industrial food crisis, the industrial agricultural crisis. You know, all of these crises are man-made. They are technology-led uh, and they are, they have no resilience. So they create a dependency. You know, if you buy GMO seeds, these GMO seeds can only be grown with synthetic fossil fuel derived fertilizers and you need mechanized big machines to harvest them. So you're completely reliant on the financial system to finance it, the agricultural industry to provide you with the seeds, the chemicals industry, et cetera, when actually many of the solutions are completely free. Of course, those free solutions have been so heavily gaslit to say that you're too good to grow your own food. Well, what are you going to do with your free time? Well, you can watch Netflix programming, you know, or you don't need physical exercise. And then you'll end up like, you know, the fat blob humans floating around in chairs and Wally. -E. And so, you know, time and time again, this, uh, this journey has taken me through very fascinating and consciousness widening themes where it turns out that humans are Renaissance people, every single one of us. We are able to process and assimilate and work through large pools of data. You know, we are collectively, when we sit together in groups and think rationally and openly doing the scientific method the way that it was supposed to be, and also using intuition and observation. And Alan Savoy, Marine Puels has a great clip from Alan Savoy where he talks about peer-reviewed papers and free thinking. And so we're at this amazing time where free thinking will lead people to the simple solutions. You know, Fritz Schumacher, if he was alive, he would be such an inspiration to many. But as Jakob Nolengord, who's another Swede, you know, so many, so many thoughts do somehow come from Sweden. There is, there is a larger picture. And so we've talked about many themes from a very high level, but I encourage the listeners to just have a look, you know, validate. Also, make sure that you're not just taking your information from the internet, that you have conversations in the real world. I phone professors all the time, you know, I phone NGOs all the time. I had a great chat with Bill McKibben and Bill McKibben, not him personally, but his 350.org. And I phoned them up and I said, look, you have wind turbines on your website. I just want you to know that wind turbines can be bad and that there's an entire fraud of exploitation and misuse of wind turbines. You know, is there someone I could talk to just so that I can share information so that you guys don't accidentally get pulled along with a fraud, you know, unintentionally, no one would speak to me. And I was, I was shocked, you know, if, if someone said you're selling, you're a doctor and you've been told to sell this pill and, you know, everyone convinced you the pill was good, but it turns out the pill is, but someone knocked on your door and said, Hey, this pill, I've got some, you know, you really need to listen. 
would you not listen? You know, the, the cognitive dissonance or perhaps explicit instructions to not talk to people is, 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 is a real danger. So we need more work, more sessions like this. Well, what did you think about Greta protesting against wind turbines recently? So, so it's very fascinating. I've been trying to talk to them about this indigenous, indigenous rights, because indigenous rights is, is a funny one because we're all indigenous peoples of earth, but unless you have a special label and you carry a card, so it's already demonizing these, you know, I love the Sami who are the indigenous people here in Sweden. I want to re-indigenize and there's a great video, I'll dig it out of me at the Stockholm Plus 50 United Nations meeting side program, asking a panel of indigenous elders, how can I re-indigenize? Because I wanna step up and take responsibility for mother earth. And I feel it's unfair to leave a dwindling group of indigenous people to stand alone and say, oh yeah, these guys over there, they're responsible. I was like, no, we all need to be responsible. So I was very pleased to see her step up, you know, after the Germany mine debacle where, you know, it was so clearly staged, they, it was a little bit more real, but I'm really interested in seeing how this now evolves because, you know, the, the indigenous people are not against wind turbines because of cultural reasons. They are against wind turbines because it is destroying nature and their way of life. And they are nature's representatives. So it's a nature proxy that I need Greta to, to wake up to. You know, She says she's not against the wind turbines themselves, just the fact that they infringe on human rights. So the legal argument is evolving, but wind turbines are machines. They are almost tree replacements. You know, It is almost like a synthetic thing. And we need her and Fridays for Future, which are the kids, you know, these are the young people who do not read the science. And I asked Greta's followers, you can see them every Friday at the parliament in Stockholm. I said, where do you get your information? And they said, from the scientists. And I said, okay, well, who are these scientists? Who finances them? Do you understand how the science is put together? Are you curious? And so these 18 year olds, 19 year olds, maybe they're 20, were full of answers. And when I was 18 or 19, I was full of questions. So if an 18 year old has all the answers, you know, the people who are influencing them have done a great job. So we need more questions. And I hope after today's session, I leave your listeners with lots of questions and a real desire to learn more. You did have one question for them that they couldn't answer though, right? About climate justice, they couldn't define that? Isn't that yes. correct? Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. And, and, and that's also one of the things that I think people need to really focus on is what is the vision of this future that we are solving for with wind turbines? Wind turbines are not a future. They are a means to facilitate and create a future. And I think if you start asking people, well, what do smart cities look like? What does the 15-minute city look like? What does the electrification of all transportation and everything look like? What does it facilitate? And then you realize people don't have a flipping, they don't have a clue. And that's the real danger because that's where they get exploited. Okay, very good. I think this might be a good wrap up point for a part one here. That's all right. Sounds all right. good. Sounds all right. Good. I really enjoyed this and I can't wait to have you back on again. Alexander Paul, thank you. Thanks a lot.